Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here to the today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. And I'm afraid I missed my f- most important function, which is to... Now I can officially welcome you. Uh, the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, you can find the club online at commonwealthclub.org on Facebook and Twitter and on the club's YouTube channel. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club Ethics and Accountability Series. It's underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation with additional support from the Bernard Osher Foundation for the club's Good Lit programs. I'm Ed Wasserman, Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and your moderator for this program. I'm now pleased to introduce our distinguished guest, Scott Pelley, veteran correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes. and an author of the new book, Truth Worth Telling, a reporter's search for meaning in the stories of our times. Uh, I want to thank Scott for being here because his being here induced me to read the book, and I can tell you, I can recommend that book to you highly. It is a terrific read. It is, uh, the narrative style is superb. The, the authenticity of the rem- remembrances are, are just stunning, and it's a way, it's kind of a journey back in the last... I don't want to date you, the last 30 years of momentous news, much of which Scott was first first eyewitness to. Um, So let's, let's, oops, I've just gotten my script. His, his, His prevailing question, his enduring question is, what does it mean to be a journalist in 2019? And as a longtime CBS anchor, and, and CBS 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley knows better than most. Mr. Pelley has been with CBS News since 1989, rose to become the network's chief White House correspondent from 1997 to 1999, which some of us will remember were the waning years of the Clinton presidency. Uh, he joined 60 Minutes 2 soon after it launched in 1999 and moved to the Sunday 60 Minutes program in 2003. His work has accounted for half of all the major awards won by 60 Minutes since he joined. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Those honors include 38 Emmys and three Peabody Awards. Mr. Pelley also served as anchor of the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite's ancestral haunts, from 2011 to 2017. He began his journalism career the way we used to at the age of 15 as a copy boy at the Lubbock, Texas Avalanche Journal newspaper. In his new book, he reflects on his years of experience, what it means to report the the truth, and why he believes this era of fake news and free speech controversies is still the best time to be a reporter. Mr. Pelley's book is is founded upon a a simple premise, don't ask the meaning of life, Life is asking, what's the meaning of you? To answer this question, Mr. Pelley recounts the most formative moments of his career, standing with firefighters at the collapsing World Trade Center, advancing advancing with American troops into combat in Afghanistan, and his conversations with numerous world leaders. In moments as adrenaline-inducing or heart-wrenching as these, what is the duty of a journalist? How can a reporter navigate the emotional response to their experiences while also providing an unbiased and nuanced view of the situation. To discuss all of this, please welcome Scott Pelley. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody. Great to be with you. Wonderful to be with you in San Francisco. So great to be invited by the Commonwealth Club. When they started the sentence, well, we we have an invitation from the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, I said, yes. (laughs) 
I mean, it's such a great venerable organization, unique in the country, a great asset for the city. And then to be here again at the Marine Memorial. I did a story here with General Myatt uh, for 60 Minutes uh, at the Marine Memorial a couple of years ago, one of the most moving pieces that I've ever had the honor of doing. So I am just doubly thrilled to be with you. And thank you, Ed, for educating the next generation of journalists. Well, it's my pleasure, Scott. Um, I want to I talk about the book for the most part. I get you to talk about the book. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that you made news yourself this week. And as I was watching, I was watching uh, Reliable Sources on CNN Sunday mornings, uh, and, and not to give CNN, a rival network, a plug, uh, but I, I, I find Brian Stelter's reporting on the media very good. And there you were talking about your book. But you were talking about something else. You confided in Brian and his millions of viewers um, <laughs> that when you left, uh, the, the circumstances under which you left as anchor of the CBS Evening News in 2017, and you, uh, and you had been there since 2011, um, and what you said was, quote, we've been through a dark period of the last several years of incompetent management and sort of a hostile work environment within the news division. I lost my job at the evening news because I wouldn't stop complaining to management about the hostile work environment. And I heard that and I went, wow. So now I have a chance to hear you explain what was going on there. And when you say hostile work environment, what do you mean? And is it still like that? It is definitely not like that today. Um, I, I think, Ed, there's, there's been a lot, of, a lot of reporting about all of this, not, not reporting about my statement, but reporting about the difficulties that we've had at CBS News and at the CBS Corporation. I'm sure a lot of you have had an opportunity to read about that over the last year or so. It's been a, it's been a dark period at CBS. But the corporation has taken incredibly decisive action in this area. We have a new chairman of the corporation, a guy named Joe Ionello, who I've known for many years, who is a, a principled and visionary CEO. I'm very excited about Joe. We have a new news division president in Susan Zarinsky. I'm a little bit embarrassed to tell you she's the first woman news division president at CBS. Uh, seems like that should have happened a long time ago. Susan, um, I, I don't know if any of you saw the movie Broadcast News many years ago. It's about, it's about Susan. Holly Hunter played Susan. I've known Susan for 30 years. She's been at CBS for 40 years. She's got CBS DNA. And um, or CBS has her DNA. I'm not sure which it is, but she is a terrific news executive. And then finally, um, at 60 Minutes, we have a new executive producer in Bill Owens, who is a man I have literally been in combat with in Iraq. And uh, Bill and I have known each other for a long time. He used to work for me, and now I work for him. Remember what they say about taking care of the young people on your way up? Because, yeah, well, so now, now I'm in that situation. So uh, to, to answer your question, that environment um, has been eradicated in the last six months. And it's a very healthy organization now. Well, as I think you probably know, the incoming class of journalists is overwhelmingly female. Uh, at, at UC Berkeley, 70% of my students at the Graduate School of Journalism are female. And so they're... Which is a wonderful thing. And, and they're obviously very uh, concerned about the problem of their entering and looking ahead to entering environments that are uh, aggressively male, uh, sometimes to the exclusion of, of women, uh, and leaving them at a tremendous disadvantage. Um, CBS has had its share has taken its share of licks. They had Les Moonves, uh, Charlie Rose, and the person who is a longtime executive producer of 60 Minutes, Jeff Fager. Uh, and these people have gone, have crashed and burned in the last few years. And I'm just... In, in the last few months. Few months all right. of them. Right. I mean, in the last year or so. It's, right. it's been a lot. So that is obviously encouraging. What's a little less encouraging is just how long their regimes were allowed to persist. And at what point does somebody like you notice inequality, uh, notice harsh handling, 
notice of all the kinds of evidence of exclusion and disadvantage. And I just tell us a little bit that here you are at the very top of the business. I mean, there's no organization that is as, as, as universally respected and admired like 60 Minutes. And yet all this time we were watching them and believing them and trusting them. They were, the, the work we were seeing was a product of a, of a, of a deformed culture. That may be a little harsh. Um, <laughs> uh, Wh- which I, part? I, uh, <laughs> I, I would tell you that the, um, the journalism side of 60 Minutes and CBS News was always quite robust. Uh, And I've I've been at CBS, uh, as you mentioned, Ed, for 30 years now. And so the the journalism side was very, very well cared for, very robust, particularly in my view at 60 Minutes. Um, And we've done some of our very best work in the last 20 years or so that I've been at 60 Minutes. but we we did have problems internally in terms of just to to use the corporate phrase human relations, um, and uh, not everyone in the news division was feeling respected. Uh, not everyone in the news division was being uh, dealt with with dignity. Uh, it CBS is a long storied history. It became ingrained in some way, uh, and. The, the board, when it became aware of all these things, decided to just pull it out by the roots. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, new chairman for the corporation, new president of the news division, new head of 60 Minutes, uh, and highly skilled and principled people now in all of those jobs. I'm, I'm more excited about CBS going into the future than I ever have been. Hmm. Was there ever a time that you noticed stories being handled a way, in a way that they would not have been handled had there been greater equality, greater representation of women? Were there stories that you were drawn to or stories that you soft-pedaled? Did this ever no, distort no, the news report? No, no. Um, uh, you know, I, in fact, this question that you raise has actually never occurred to me before. Um, never saw it. it um, never saw it invade the the journalism of what we were doing. Now, I would hasten to add that we are always better when we have a more diverse staff, of course. If there are more women, we're going to be getting different kinds of stories if, as in, instead of you know, having an all-male staff or something like that. And so uh, the more inclusive we are, the better journalists we are, the, the more we look like the America we, we serve. And so that is an enormous benefit. But in terms of, of um, tainting the output of the product, no, I never saw anything like that, ever. So now when we see the lineup at the beginning of 60 Minutes, and there is a, there is a watch somewhere, isn't there? There, there, there is. is. Ticket, is you is you know, really the, there? the stopwatch is an interesting problem. It's iconic. If, if you heard the tick right now, everyone in this room would think 60 Minutes. <laughs> and yet... No one under the age of 30 has ever seen a, a stopwatch like that. It's kind of a problem. And there's no plan to change that, but it's, it's, uh, it's like a telephone with a dial on it. It's just like, what, what the heck is that thing? So, so when the cast of, of, uh, of reporters is called at the beginning of 60 Minutes, how many women are there? I think we only have Leslie Stahl. We have Leslie Stahl and Sharon Alfonsi. Okay. Sharon Alfonsi. That's two out of what, eight, uh, nine? Well, they're, the model used to be five correspondents, each of us do 20 stories, that's 100 stories, and that's how many you need to get through the season. Lately, uh, we have had some contributors mixed in there. So the full-time correspondents include uh, myself, Steve Croft, just retired, Leslie Stahl, uh, Sharon Alfonsi, Bill Whitaker, and then we have a number of people who, uh, who contribute. Yeah. All right, I'll let you off the hook now. Let's go to your book, okay. which is really what we're here to talk about. Um, so I have a big question for you, which is reflecting back over your career 
and the performance of the news media, what, were, what was the high point? When were you proudest to be a journalist? When did you think the media were really doing the job that they were put here to do? Well, I have to say that 9-11 was that day. If there was a day, it was that day. Uh, I, I write in the book that everything CBS News had become from its beginning in the days before World War II with Edward R. Murrow all the way through Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather, everything had led us to that day. Um, I can't think of a day that America needed solid, independent, reliable information more than then. And I was down at the World Trade Center when the buildings came down, and the opening chapter of the book is entitled Gallantry, and it's about what I saw with the firefighters of the FDNY. 343 firemen were killed in 90 minutes there. It's the largest loss of life in any, of any emergency service in history in a single incident. And I have for many years since then, it's hard to believe it's been almost 20 years, for many years since then I have wanted to pay tribute to those men and women that I saw charging up those stairwells, knowing the risk, but just against the chance that they might be able to save someone. When I was writing that chapter, it occurred to me that they didn't know who attacked us. They didn't know what 9-11 was about. But it didn't matter, because they knew what they were about. Every one of them, years or decades before, had sworn to protect the people of the city of New York and had decided then what they would do on that day. And that's why I entitled that chapter Gallantry. Many of the other chapters, as you know, are entitled after virtues and in circumstances where I've seen young people, uh, people young and old men and women, people of all walks of life, find the meaning of their lives in these historic events. It's a very moving chapter, I have to say. And I, I, it was hard to write. Somebody, I had to stop over and I over again. I can't believe you did it. I find it hard to read. I had, uh, I had to stop. I would have tears in my eyes to the extent that I just couldn't see the screen on my laptop anymore. And then the really hard part was uh, recording the audio book um, and just trying to read through all of that. I had to stop that over and over again. I didn't realize, Ed, that and this is something I talk to young reporters and, and journalism students about, I didn't realize until years later that I had PTSD. From that? Uh, from, from that. From the day? Yes. I mean, I, w I arrived, I was down on West Street uh, near the incident command post where the firefighters were, were uh, where the attack, the firefighting attack was being led. And when I got down there, I saw the, that tall mast on the top of World Trade Center number one, and it looked to me like it was waving, like, almost like a, like a metronome. And I thought, well, that can't be. I thought it was an optical illusion, you know, the heat torturing the light. And then as soon as I thought that, it started to go down. And you've heard people talk about witnessing catastrophic events and seeing them somehow in slow motion, I'm, I'm here to tell you that it's true. I, the way I saw it in my mind was that one floor fell and it stopped, and then the next one, and then the next one. Of course, what all of you saw was the building just roared down at, with heartbreaking speed. I don't know how I got there, but I, the next thing I remember is I'm on my knees on the street and I'm calling out to God out loud, and I said, Lord, take them all with no pain. <laughs> I don't remember what happened next, but my next memory is that I'm running, and there are people around me running, and I hear steel crashing behind me in the street. I don't remember how far I ran, but I do remember it occurred to me at a certain moment that the conflagration behind me was beginning to subside, so I turned around and walked back in. And CBS News was on the air for 96 hours. No commercials, no breaks, all day, all night, 96 hours. And I'm just, I think it was our finest hour. I'm very proud of that. And, and, and I just hope the current members of the FDNY find this chapter worthy of that 
sacrifice. Understood. Yeah, I, I certainly, it is a very moving chapter, and I recommend it. It's richly detailed and, and beautifully told and hard, very hard to read. Um, I think the, and I, and I also remember, as you do, how proud, uh, how proud you were to be associated with the media, that people trusted you. They were looking to you. There was a reliance. There was a kind of re- a retrieval or a recapture of a, of a sense of being integrally important to people's lives. But then I remember the next day seeing the New York Times, and the headline was, America Attacked. And to some degree, that was our cardinal that was when the die began to be cast. It was defined as being America attacked. We were at war at that point. And it was the New York Times, the, the best, greatest paper in the world, that, that spun that. Other papers were more circumspect. They were more careful in the way they framed the, the, uh, uh, the hijackings. Um, so it, it, to some degree, it was kind of the very best of journalism there. And in some ways, it was a... I, I, I submit there was also a problem of people perhaps leaping, or, or, uh, grabbing a frame, framing the event within that, and then it had within a few years catastrophic consequence in terms of the, the direction that the country took. Um, well, let me ask the same question on the flip side. What was the, in your career, when was the time that you thought the media really blew it, that you were least proud to be a journalist and... W- most devoutly wishing that the media were doing something different. Well, I'm always proud to be a journalist, but we, we're a profession of human beings, and we make mistakes, and, and we miss things that we shouldn't miss. And um, young people typically ask me what my greatest failure was. That's why I try to never speak with young people. <laughs> But uh, I, I write about this extensively, actually, in the book, because there, there is a moment, and in, in my view, it was the run-up to the Gulf War uh, in late 2002, beginning of 2003, uh, when the country's temper is tuned to war. I think that's when journalists should aggressively investigate the countervailing questions. Um, Maybe the war is justified. In, in my view, Afghanistan, there, there was no option. We had, we had to do that, of course. Um, but Iraq turned out to be, as we all know, a very different thing. I interviewed Bill Owens, who used to work for me, and now I work for him, found an Iraqi army general who had been exiled from Iraq. He used to be Saddam Hussein's chief of staff, so he knew everything. And he found him living in Copenhagen, essentially waiting for Saddam's assassin. And we (laughs) interviewed him, and General Karaje told us three things. He said, there's no nuclear program, period. There is no chemical program, period. That there was a biological program, um, and that it, it might still be intact. So he's knocked out two pillars of the Bush administration's argument about weapons of mass destruction. We reported that. We put that on 60 Minutes. We let him say all of that. But my mistake was I didn't appreciate the importance at the time. I should have dropped everything and said, wait a minute, let's start digging into this like crazy. And uh, I didn't do that. I think that a lot of our colleagues and competitors in journalism also failed to do that. There was some critical reporting, but most of that was shouted down with bellicose speeches and leaks to the media and what have you, and uh, particularly a, a number of leaks to the New York Times that were, that were meant to support the argument for a war. So when do I think we let America down? I think we let America down right there. People are going to be, journalists in particular, are going to be criticized as unpatriotic if they pursue the countervailing questions when an administration is bent on war. But I would argue that the opposite is true. Keeping America out of a war that we shouldn't be in is the height of patriotism to me. And I'm, I am crazy about our armed forces. I've been to Iraq 26 times. 
I went to Afghanistan 10 times. I have been with every branch of the service. I've been in combat with every branch of the service. I've had my life saved by every branch of the service. And you shouldn't, can't ever blame them. They don't choose. They go where they're told. And so it is up to the administration, it is up to us to question the administration. If journalists and the American people don't question the administration, then the administration doesn't question itself. And so I really feel strongly now after the experience of 2003 and the Iraq war where our troops are serving tonight, uh, after all of this time, uh, that uh, it's so important that we ask those countervailing questions. Could you talk a little more about the coverage of the Iraq war? Uh, you've been there a lot and you've covered quite a lot of it. Um, do you think that the images and the narrative from that war correctly conveyed to the American people the reality that you saw? There was an enormous improvement, in my view, in how the Pentagon dealt with reporters in that war. Uh, they allowed reporters to embed with various military units, and that is exactly the right thing to do. I, I believe that when America goes to war, all of America has to go. And the way that all of America goes to war is through independent reporting of the war correspondent on the ground. Uh, the, the Pentagon's got an axe to grind, right? They've got a story to tell. Of course. How could it be otherwise? So independent reporting on the ground is the only way that we can reliably know what is being done with our sons and our daughters and our treasure. So the Pentagon had a very enlightened policy for that in, in, the, in the Iraq War. Uh, I felt at that time that what was really important was that we have some independent reporting outside that uh, Pentagon system. So uh, Bill Owens and I, he used to work for me, I used to work for him. <laughs> um, we, we put a team together and uh, when the invasion force was going into uh, Kuwait, we just kind of dovetailed in with them and went all the way to Baghdad independently. Um, some reporters got killed doing that. Uh, by accident, uh, but uh, I felt it was vitally important that the American people had that independent reporting. You're talking about the Gulf War now, not the... No, I'm talking about the 2003 Iraq okay. uh, invasion of okay. Iraq. I I'm surprised to hear you describe embedded reporters as reporting independently. The criticism one often hears is that the embedding has the effect of stifling, muffling, uh, uh, biasing yes. the kind of reporting and that they can and it can. Do. And it can. On the other hand, um, there are only two options here. Go with the troops, I mean, be part of the military unit, or do what we did, go out on your own and stand to be killed by either side. So, and, and, and people were. Um, I think you need both. I th and I, I credit the Pentagon for supporting journalists in the field, uh, even though there could be that flaw that you just described in that, in that kind of reporting. So you think that the American public was fully aware of the amount of civilian suffering in Iraq? Never. Um, one of the things I write about in the book uh, is that uh, 300,000 people were killed in the Iraq War. We don't often think about that. Uh, the number of American troops and contractors killed is a little over 4,000. Um, and they are beautifully commemorated here in this building. If you've never seen the memorial wall here in this building for our troops who have sacrificed their lives in the war since 9-11, I highly recommend it to you. Thank you. Um, but on, on the Iraqi side, about 300,000 people were killed, most of them civilians. Uh, it, uh, in my view, and I, uh, again, this is, this is my opinion, uh, but I write in the book that, I, in my view, it was the greatest foreign policy blunder of, in American history. I wonder whether you've had what you're thinking now about the war crimes trials that are coming up and the... Uh, indications of the White House that the president's eager to pardon uh, people accused of, in some cases, horrendous mm -hmm. wrongs. Any 
I um, won't judge the evidence in that case, but I will tell you that uh, we're America, and we have to be the country that um, prosecutes war crimes, whether they're committed by others or in our own case. We have to keep our own house clean. Um, those kinds of things happen. What I saw 99% of the time in Iraq and Afghanistan was your troops serving with distinction in Iraq in particular trying to make the best of a bad policy and, um, and serving brilliantly. But there have been war crimes committed by American troops in World War II and Vietnam and, and in other places. It does happen. We are human beings. There is a uniform code of military justice just for this because, of, because some people commit crimes, whether they're in uniform or not. And I think it's vitally important that the UCMJ and the military system be allowed to prosecute these people without presidential interference so that justice can be done. We have a number of audience members that are eager for you to do some reminiscing. Um, and I have this question of what your most challenging interview was and which interview that you did uh, that you found the most moving or surprising? So these are, I suppose, three questions. I, I, yeah, I think so. Um, I've been at 60 Minutes 20 years, and that means I've done about 450 stories for the broadcast, and I love all my children. <laughs> and I get this question a lot. What's your favorite interview? You know, it's like, I don't know. Um, one of the most challenging interviews I did was with George Tenet, and this gets us back to Iraq. George Tenet was director of the CIA. He was director of the CIA uh, in the lead-up to 9-11 and in the lead-up to the Gulf War, and it was his CIA that provided the intelligence. It turned out to be so tragically wrong. Uh, Tenet had never done an interview in his life but he sat down with me for six hours of interviews at Georgetown immediately after he retired. And we went through all that stuff. How did you miss 9-11? Where on earth did this intelligence come from in 2003 that turned out to be completely wrong? And were, was the CIA, was the United States involved in torturing uh, prisoners uh, in, the, um, in the war on terror? So it was very combative. Uh, George uh, is a uh, fierce defender of the CIA and his people and the work that they did. And so it was, uh, it was a very combative interview. I write about it uh, quite a bit here. It was uh, illuminating. We had this discussion about whether torture was involved in the war on terror. And he was insisting, we do not torture people. We do not torture people. And we were going at it. And I finally said, okay. Why were these enhanced interrogation techniques necessary? And he said, because these are people who will never, ever, ever tell you a thing. They know about the next plot against America, and they will kill you 30 seconds after they get out of wherever they're being held. <laughs> there was the answer. He would never and will never admit to torture, but there was the answer. One of the things I found in doing research for this book was a previously classified, I found it in the CIA archives, a previously classified memo in which CIA lawyers are communicating with Department of Justice lawyers. And the CIA lawyers, are the memo's in here, the CIA lawyers are essentially saying, we understand that these enumerated techniques uh, are in violation of US law, the US anti-torture uh, law. So what we need from you, Department of Justice, uh, is assurance that when we do these things, you won't prosecute any CIA people involved. And then I found another memo uh, that uh, the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, had communicated back to the CIA lawyers that said, you're good. And then that's, you know, where things began to roll downhill. You, you, you also asked me about the most gratifying interview. I'll, I'll tell you, 
we, I went to northern Iraq <clears throat> a few years ago to understand and report on the atrocities that ISIS was committing. You'll recall ISIS was holding about a third of Iraq and about a third of Syria. We went up into northern Iraq with the Peshmerga, uh, the, uh, the Kurdish troops up there in the, in the part that they were holding uh, in uh, holding ISIS at bay in that area. We went into a refugee camp. One of my great associate producers, Rachel Morehouse, met a young woman, 21 years old. It's a long story, but she was a Yazidi, and ISIS tried to wipe the Yazidis out. They, they, had, they practice a different religion, and so ISIS considered them to be apostates, non-believers. They lined the men up in front of ditches that they dug with bulldozers and just machine-gunned them all, village after village. Then they took the women and sold them for money as sex slaves. And that's what happened to this young woman. She was sold to a soldier and raped, sold to the next soldier and raped, sold to the next soldier and raped. Well, as you can imagine, she's traumatized. Rachel comes in and says, would you like to talk to the American television audience on 60 Minutes? She doesn't, she's never heard of 60 Minutes. And she's very hesitant, doesn't want to do it. Rape is stigmatized in her very conservative society. And she finally decides, okay, I'll, I'll go meet Scott Pelley and, and we'll, we'll talk. So she comes into where I am. We've set up this small TV studio uh, in northern Iraq. And she comes in, she's shaking. First thing I do is sit down and I say, let's not do this. If, if you have any doubt in your mind, there is no obligation, let's not do this. But she felt like she really wanted to somehow. And so she agreed to do the interview with stipulations. All the men in my team had to stand behind curtains we, she wore a veil, only her eyes were exposed, we wouldn't use her name, and she asked that Rachel Morehouse, my associate producer, sit next to her and hold her hand, which we did. The interview began, she was shaking, very hesitant, timid, but as the interview progressed, she became more and more confident. It occurred to me that at the beginning, she was speaking for herself, but about halfway through the interview, she was speaking for her people. We put the interview on, and um, she went back to the refugee camp. Long story short, she was resettled into Germany, became involved with a Yazidi human rights organization. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm in Washington in a hotel room getting ready for an interview. The phone rings, I pick it up to find out that Nadia Murad had won the Nobel Peace Prize. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. So that's a very special interview. <laughs> I should think so. And Rachel Morehouse found this woman in a refugee camp. Uh, well, it's just a, it's a testament to the power of, of what journalism can do and, uh, and the, the confidence that people can develop when they decide to speak out against injustice. One of the uh, themes, one of the currents in your book um, is an unusual one in that you have a great deal of regard for your audience. You have, and, and, and really you have affection and respect for your audience uh, in a way that oftentimes, I, I don't need to tell you, oftentimes journalists grow very cynical and they grow very um, apprehensive uh, about the possibility that things they're telling people will make any difference to them and they'll be believed and that people will say, shape their opinions accordingly, and they'll have an impact. And you have this statement here, I have found over decades in disasters, natural and man-made, all journalism has to do, all journalism rather, has to do is investigate and report. Armed with reliable information, Americans always do their best. 
Um, and I don't know that I've seen that. And, um, and I think that there is a great deal of despair and despondency among the fourth estate, particularly in this era, and it is an invitation to you to talk about new media and the like and fake news. And, but I, I think there is a, a genuine concern that people don't know what to make of the facts that they're given. They are too often inclined to draw the wrong conclusions or to draw the wrong policy uh, uh, to, to draw the wrong, wrong policy lessons from what they're learning, and that as a result, journalists wonder, well, what are they doing? What are, what are they doing? They're not in the entertainment business. Uh, they think they're in the truth-seeking and truth-telling business, but they're not perceived that way, and they despair of ever winning or winning back the confidence of the audience that they might be trusted and regarded as reliable bearers of information, publicly significant information that people need to have. So I guess I'm teeing up this larger question. You don't seem to have that doubt. You really do seem to believe that at least when it's in 60 minutes, it has the desired impact, and you can take pride in that. The rest of us are going, wow. (laughs) You know, uh, Walt Whitman wrote about poets, he who sees the furthest has the most faith. And so I, I take the long view in, in all of these things. And I, I think that the, the other, other quote that you'll find in the book is what Martin Luther King uh, used to paraphrase, and that is, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I think over time, the, the arc bends toward justice uh, for journalism and for all of the American people, if the American people are armed with the right information. Um, we did a story, uh, my great producer, Nicole Young, and I did a story about uh, families living in cars during the Great Recession when they had lost their homes. And uh, we put the story on the air. It was in Orange County, Florida. And $5 million was donated the next week to Orange County uh, Charities. Uh, We did a story about a a great organization called RAM, Remote Area Medical, and they they were created to drop doctors and medicine into remote jungles of South America and Africa. But because of the healthcare problems in this country, they started setting up clinics in the United States and they were mobbed. Um, Well, one of the charming things about them was they flew around in this World War II DC-3 airplane, which was held together with gaffer's tape, largely. And um, we put that story on the air, and the next day a philanthropist in New York bought him a new airplane. So those are the things that make me uh, believe in the American people so much. They do seem to react to, uh, to the information that we give them, in my experience. I think you're, we've all had that, that experience when the news functions as an engine of social compassion and people do respond, and it's always gratifying. Um, the, the, the larger question is whether people appear to be acting in a way that reflects a reasoned understanding of the world around them, or are they consistently making choices that indicate they don't believe some principle foundational truths that we in the media have been trying to tell them. And there must be a measure of concern on your part. Oh, of course. So what, I mean, what is it that journalists are doing wrong? Or what is it that is preventing people from accepting realities that journalists believe they're effectively presenting? Well, you know, this is a transaction that we have uh, between journalists and our readers and viewers. You have responsibilities, too, in that transaction. Uh, And especially right now, one of the things that worries me the most about our beloved country is that we have moved seamlessly from the information age to the disinformation age. What's the fastest way to destroy a democracy? Is it terrorism? War? Another great depression? I don't think so. The fastest way to destroy a democracy is to poison the information. And it's happening now. 
The Russians have figured this out. The Chinese have figured this out. The North Koreans have figured this out. And guess what? It's not a problem for them because they have controlled media. It's a unique problem to democracies. Why? Because the founders gave us the power over the government. But the only way we can exercise that power is with reliable, independent information. So that's where journalism comes in and why we keep beating our heads against the truth all day, every day, and putting it out there, hoping that the audience will respond to it. Now, here's where your, your part of the transaction comes in. You have a responsibility today that you have never had before. When I came up in journalism, there were three TV networks, as God intended. <laughs> and you could, you could rely on the fact that those were trained journalists being supervised by people who'd been doing it for 20 or 30 years. And most importantly, all brand name journalism shares this, we have enormous reputational risk. If, if we blow a story, it could destroy us. So we care a lot about that. Problem is, now on the internet, you have all this news, the real fake news, uh, and you don't know what to believe. So now here's the responsibility that you have, your children will have, every generation of Americans going forward will have that had never existed before. When you read something on the internet and you're outraged by it or you can't believe that thing happened or what have you, you now have a responsibility to check other sources. I'm sorry, it used to be easier, but that's just not going to be that way anymore. What you, what you just read may have been written by Lieutenant whatever by the, of the GRU in, in St. Petersburg, literally, on your laptop or your iPad. So what you have to do now is look to those news organizations, and yes, this is a little self-serving, but brand name news organizations. Maybe it's the Chronicle, maybe it's NBC News, maybe it's NPR. Take your choice. I don't care who it is. Make sure it's somebody that has reputational risk if they get something wrong, and triangulate. You have the story that you read that outraged you. Well, what is, what is KGO? reporting on that? What is NPR reporting on that? What is CNN reporting on that? And you have to triangulate the information to understand. It is a pain, and you've never had to do it before. But here's the beauty part. You can do it for the first time in human history. It's pretty easy to do now. You can look at all of those sources any time you want to from the comfort of your iPad. So, um, this is a transaction that both of us have a responsibility. The audience has more responsibility now than ever before. Why does that matter? Because, as I said, there is no democracy without journalism and free, independent information. But you have to choose the right ones. All of us have made decisions today about what to eat and what not to eat because it's good for our bodies. Well, now you have to choose an information diet that's good for your brain. I mean, you're... I think that's great advice. I, I just wonder whether it's reasonable to expect people to be as discerning as you recommend that they be. Are people really in a position to, uh, to determine that Nan the footage of Nancy Pelosi was mm. doctored and, mm -hmm. and was bogus? Well, that's where they, journalism comes in. We'll, we'll it, tell them that. Well, I, I agree. I agree. But w there is a vast amount of harm that's done long before the journalists can step mm -hmm. in and fact check and repudiate reports that are false. And I'm wondering whether we um, collectively, legally, uh, are currently equipped with the kind of responses that we should have in order to deter this kind of disinformation from going out in the first place. And we, you know, we naturally take tremendous comfort in the First Amendment. The First Amendment is not a license to deliberately misinform and to be completely, uh, it's not a license to apply no standards of discernment in what you put out. 
And, and the market is not a very good source of sanction either. And reputational harm does work. If a newspaper is found back in the day, aging myself here, but back in the day, if a newspaper was found to be unreliable, people, in theory, didn't read it. Now, they have fewer kinds of online sources, and they tend to believe that they will stay with the sources that they're by and large used to using. There are other reasons that, it, that induce them to do that. And I'm wondering whether we're, uh, we, we are still dealing with a deck that's stacked badly against the truth-telling that we want to encourage. We absolutely are. I, I couldn't agree more. What would you like to see happen? What, you, what would I like to see happen? Um, I, I would... I, I would like to see the audience take responsibility for their information diet. You know, I, I can't say this any more plainly than this. America is under attack tonight. They are trying to destroy the thing that makes democracy work, and that is truth and independent information. What's, what's more likely to work? A 9-11 attack that unites our whole country, or a clandestine poisoning of information that sets all of us at each other's throats. I think of 9-11 now as dumb terrorism. That's not going to work. But what the Russians and, and cynical players, cynical politicians, and cynical people involved in just making a buck in the United States are doing today, poisoning our information, that is the thing, that this is why I'm so worried about the, the future of my children, your children, our grandchildren. Uh, we have to wake up to this. Uh, the vast majority of people in the United States don't quite realize what is happening. Uh, and it is happening right now. I, I think that's well said. But l let, me, let me draw you into an area you may not be comfortable with. Um, we have, on the one hand, protection for liars, and the other hand, we're punishing truth-tellers. And we have an unprecedented assault on sources, whistleblowers, sources. We've, uh, and, and I think we're up to seven or eight prosecutions under the Espionage Act, which was created to prevent people from taking, spying on America and selling those, selling those secrets to enemies in an effort to harm the country. Instead, it's being used against people whose crime is to make this information public in a way that they believe will enhance public illumination. And I wonder, you know, Julian Assange is back behind bars. Chelsea Manning is back behind bars. Uh, the information, uh, Snowden, whose information, uh, he, he blew the whistle on domestic, terror, uh, domestic surveillance, a program that was found to be illegal. Most of the information that, that Manning and, and Assange, although we're not very fond of them because of what happened in the 2016 election and it reflected badly on Hillary, so they kind of lost his liberal credentials, but most of the information that was, that was back in 2010 was information about war crimes, was information about wrongdoing by Americans. Uh, and um, do we have, where is the media standing up for this, their most indispensable resource, which is their sources? Well, this is a wholesale attack. There were more prosecutions of whistleblowers in the Obama administration than there had ever been before. Right. Um, the Trump administration seems to take a similarly dim view um, of, uh, of whistleblowers and those who leak classified information. You know, I'm remembered uh, of the... Um, Pentagon Papers case, which went all the way to the Supreme Court. And as you recall, the issue there was that the Pentagon Papers, an analysis of how and why we got into Vietnam, which looked uh, very bad for uh, both Democratic and Republican presidents, um, was classified. It was leaked. The Washington Post and the New York Times uh, moved to publish it. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. I love what Justice Hugo Black said in his uh, opinion in that case. He said that the papers, the Washington Post and the New York Times, were acting exactly as the founders expected them to do. Madison wrote that freedom of the press and freedom of speech are the rights that guarantee all the others. 
He knew that if we could say what we wanted to say, write what we wanted to write, read what we wanted to read, then all of the rights he put in the Bill of Rights would be protected. So I take a pretty expansive view. Um, I I understand that you can't just willy-nilly be leaking classified information. A lot of information is classified because it needs to be. You don't want it getting out into the public. It could be very dangerous. But a lot of things, well, the classification system in Washington runs on a hierarchy like this. There's secret, top secret, compartmentalized information, and then the highest classification of all is embarrassing. (laughs) And it's that kind of thing that uh, we need to be able to uh, get a hold of and tell the American people about. There are just no good situations in which the American people are kept in the dark in a democracy, in my view. Yeah, I, I quite agree. Let's remember that after the Times and the Post won their uh, prior restraint case before the Supreme Court, the espionage case against Ellsberg and Russo went on for another two years. And it's still not clear uh, how that would have been adjudicated because it fell apart because the plumbers, uh, the Nixon, remember his, his, uh, gang of, his gang of thugs, it so outraged the court that the, the case fell apart. So we never really got, nor did we ever find out whether the Post and, and the Times might have been prosecuted for violating the Espionage Act themselves. It but, was strictly on a matter of prior restraint, whether they could be enjoined indeed. from publishing in advance. But, Ed, you know, to your question about Julian Assange, this is also undoubtedly going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. And so we are going to be faced, like the Pentagon Papers, with a, a case that asks the question, um, what, it, what are the boundaries of freedom, the freedom of speech and freedom of the press in the information age, in the Internet age? And so I don't know how this new Supreme Court is going to come down on that question. Uh, and that'll, that'll be fascinating. No, I, I, I quite agree. Uh, More information is good. Less information is bad. <laughs> I, hope, I hope the court understands that. Well, I just, what bothers me is to hear journalists say, well, he's not a journalist, so we don't care. And, and He's you do not a journalist, he's a, but he's a conduit for information. And that is increasingly the universe we live in because of the nature of the Internet. And so um, there are going to be a lot of interesting cases going forward that talk about or, or make rulings about what are the parameters of freedom of speech and freedom of the press in this Internet age. I want to turn to the president. Um, you have some, you have some pretty harsh words for. Uh, I've got Trump. harsh words for everybody. <laughs> you know, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> um, I wonder how effectively you think the media have been in covering Trump in the in the election. No, now. Uh-huh. I'm saying the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, some of us are concerned that there's been a, a, a an excessive focus on him as a kind of renegade, a kind of a rogue figure, and, and, and a, a, too much attention paid on his lunacies and too little attention paid to the wrecking crew that he's unleashed on, on the federal system. And, and, and the policies and, right. and, and all of and, that. And I, I wonder, he is so, he's, he's catnip to the media. He's been a blessing to the media. Mm -hmm. Ratings are up. People follow him. He's a celebrity in a kind of, for those of us who who don't like him very much, we're nevertheless riveted to what he's, the next idiocy he commits. (laughs) And, And you wonder how much bandwidth in public information, coverage of that, He's the front man in the, in the, in the storefront, and, he's, and, you don't, and you're watching him, you're fascinated with him, you're repelled by him, and you're not seeing the moving vans pulling up to the, in the alleyway aside, you know, beside the store and looting the place. And, you know, there's a sense, I worry that the media are getting bad habits I, thanks I, to him. I couldn't agree more. Now, I would argue that, I mean, this is, an, the Trump administration is an extreme example but in, in my view, this is, to some degree, always the case, right? We always pay inordinate attention to the President of the United States and what he said or whether he tripped over the step and all that kind of thing. Now, as you illustrate, this is an extraordinary case. I don't think the media is doing enough work. Some people are doing brilliant work, but writ large, we're not doing enough work on 
what does all this mean in terms of the environment, labor relations, uh, em employment issues, all, all of those things. Uh, and so we, we could do uh, a much better job digging into those things. Um, it's becoming entertainment, and that's not really what our job is. If we do our jobs right, it's not about entertainment. Uh, I also worry that in media today, particularly in my beloved television media, um, there is a misunderstanding that uh, journalism has something to do with popularity. It has nothing to do with popularity. In fact, if you do it right, you're likely to be pretty unpopular. Um, and I, I try to tell young people that because that's our job. Our job is not to walk on a red carpet and have our picture taken. It's to be involved in public service. That's what we do. And so, thank you. And I think it undermines our credibility when, when, when reporters uh, uh, grab for the limelight and are more interested in being celebrated than being believed. But, you know, you brought up President Trump, and I, there's something that concerns me greatly that I wanted to mention about all of that, and that is the, the, the rhetoric in this country. In the first year of the Trump administration, I was still anchoring the evening news, and we were very frank about what the president was saying and when he was telling the truth and when he wasn't and how we knew the difference. And shortly after that, the president called CBS News the enemy of the American people. So I went to lunch at the White House with several other anchors and the president a few weeks after that. And I said, Mr. President, criticize the media. Take your best shot. Absolutely. But I'm concerned that enemy of the American people is going to incite violence in the country. I'm afraid some poor deranged individual is going to walk into the local newspaper or television station and shoot the receptionist because she's the enemy of the American people. And the president looked at the ceiling for a second. He looked back at me, and this is a direct quote. He said, I don't worry about that. <laughs> so well, what did you take that to mean? I don't worry about that. It's just one fewer receptionist? To tell you the truth, uh, I thought because we were in a party of about 10 or 12 people that he was performing for the table. And I thought, okay, I'm, I have to be smarter about this. I've got to get him alone. And so after the lunch broke up, I crossed the room. We were up in the state dining room at the White House, and I kind of buttonholed him in a corner. And I said, no, seriously, Mr. President, I, I really want to ask you to think about that because I'm very concerned that this could incite violence. And he said, okay, I'll think about it. But obviously nothing ever changed. <laughs> now, you, you all remember the guy a few months ago who mailed the dozen bombs to uh, various people that he perceived to be enemies of, of President Trump? Well, the FBI calls me. I immediately think, well, what have I done lately? <laughs> but they were calling with a duty-to-warn message. They told me that the guy, the bomber, had a file on me and my family in his computer, and he had my home address. We've had political violence in this country in the 1960s. We don't want to go back to that. And I think that this is the point that that kind of thing has to stop. Let's disagree, let's argue passionately and do all of those things, but on the right and on the left, we need to tune down this crazy rhetoric that is going to inspire people to violence. So we're, we're, we're just about out of time. I'd like to ask you to reflect a little bit on the coming election what do you want to see the media do differently from the way they've covered elections in the past? I would love to see, and we tried to do this uh, at the evening news when I was the managing editor there, a great deal of coverage about the issues that matter and less about the personalities and the, and the here they come, there they go kind of stuff. This really gets, Ed, back to your point earlier about whether we're paying too, attention, too much attention to the clown car and we're missing what's going on in, in our country. And so I'd like to see a lot more reporting on the issues, a lot more reporting on, okay, we've had three years of the Trump administration, here's where things are better or worse, whatever it comes down to, but I, I'd, like to, I'd like the American people to have that kind of information. Do you think the debates work? 
as vehicles of public illumination? You do get an insight into personality in the debates. I, I am the most a-partisan person you will ever meet. I, this will be unpopular in this room, but I do not care whether the Democrats or the Republicans hold the White House or the Capitol Hill. I, I do not care. I do not have that gene. I care a lot about character. I've met, I've met great Republicans. I'm a big fan of John McCain. I've met great Democrats. I've met terrific people on both sides of the aisle. I think the debates give you an insight into character and how this election turned out the way it did after those debates, I can't imagine. Because <laughs> well, it was all there. Nobody was fooled, right? Nobody was fooled. It was all, we reported the whole thing. You saw what happened. And uh, here we are. Well, un unfortunately, we've, we've run out of time. You've been an amazing audience. Uh, our thanks to Scott Pelley, correspondent for 60 Minutes, author of the new book. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Truth Worth Telling, reporters search for meaning in the stories of our times. Thanks to you. The audience is here and online, radio, television. Uh, and this program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Ethics and Accountability Series, underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation, with additional support from the Bernard Osher Foundation for the club's Good Lit programs. We also want to remind everyone here that copies of Mr. Pelly's book are on sale. He'll be pleased to sign them on stage following the program. If you wish to have your book signed, please remain seated following the program. One of our staff will provide further instructions. This has been my pleasure. I'm Ed Wasserman. I'm Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned 